You're listening to The Deadly Dose, hosted by Harini Bott and Megan Gesner. Poison Pals, welcome back. You are strapping in for The Good Nurse, part two. <laughs> part two. Featuring Harini as our storyteller today. Yeah. So Harini, I understand that you watched The Good Nurse, which by the way, I did finally watch. Mm-hmm. So if you want to talk about yeah, my I, opinions I want to know your opinion. It, can, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. If you listen to part one, part one was about the dramatized version of the events that occurred with serial killer Charles Cullen and Harini after watching the film version (laughs) found out more information so that's what part two is today it's going to be added information um more dare I say accurate Mm -hmm. yes I hope so yeah yeah yeah. okay well exactly as Megan said well first of all we're doing two things differently we said for we we had part one and then we decided to take a break, talk about stingrays, and then come we back to part stingrays. two. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you know what? We we're trying to mix up some spice in your life. We don't want to do like the traditional part one, part two. We want to spring it on you when you're least expecting it. Yeah, See how exactly. much you remember. This is a pop quiz. <laughs> right. And that's when serial killers strike too when you're least expecting. That is correct. That is correct. <laughs> we had to we had to distract you. And then we can spring the serial killer back into your life. Mm-hmm. So we'll see how much you remember if you guys tuned in for part one. If you haven't, go back and listen if you want. doesn't matter. We're going to be basically talking about the same thing and then some. So okay, okay. Um, basically what happened, you guys, was I watched this movie, The Good Nurse, and then, you know, Da 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 da! Like wrote down my notes, did this whole damn podcast, and then she was inspired. I was inspired, and not even like two days later, I'm sitting down and I see essentially a documentary version of the actual story with the real people and all of the things. And I was like, oh no! <laughs> oh, <laughs> and I, I just sat down and watched like five minutes, and already in that five minutes, there was so much more information that was not presented. Mm in the movie which of course makes sense but then i texted megan i was like megan (laughs) there's more so i felt like i didn't because i I did feel a little weary if i'm being honest about doing just that first part episode Mm -hmm. based on the film because you know there wasn't a lot of information out there on the internet that i could kind of Mm -hmm. cross-reference or fact check so having this documentary was really helpful to just see like okay this is exactly or actually what happened so that's what we're gonna talk about today yeah, I think this is good. It gives a little bit more to Amy's story. Mm-hmm. That's the nurse who assisted the New Jersey police to bring in Colin yep. and get him to confess. Mm-hmm. So Totally. Yeah. And more on the victims because I think they may have changed the names for the movie. So uh, it will be good to shed some more light on who these people were like as actual people. Mm-hmm. Megan, real quick, before we jump into the actual documentary, what did you think about the movie? Movie was good. I did actually follow through and watched it right after we recorded part one. Um, it, it's it's a good two hours and some change, yeah. but it felt very fast. Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't a scary movie or anything. It just felt like just kind of like a true crime 
you know, you're just like, how she, how, how is this going to roll out? Like, how, how are they going to figure out, how are they going to get him to confess? Mm-hmm. All of that. I thought the acting was well done. You know, if you Google it, it it'll obviously you'll see how it's rated on IMDb and mm-hmm. Rotten Tomatoes. I don't really know. I, like, I thought it was a fine film. Yeah. Like, I I think it's rated something like six something, six point seven stars on IMDb. If people still use that as a metric, <laughs> um, but I was like, I maybe maybe that's just what happens when a movie goes to Netflix. It's mm-hmm. like a Netflix film. People feel like maybe it doesn't have as much merit or whatever. Sure. But I was like, I enjoyed it. It yeah. was fine. Yeah, yeah, it was it, it was. I enjoyed it exactly. Like I was, I I got through it pretty quickly. It didn't feel like two hours. I'll put it that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't like life changing, but it was a good representation or dramatization, I believe, of what actually happened. Again, I only know the information that you've shared and what the mm-hmm. movie has depicted. Yeah. So I I guess the unsatisfactory part is, you know, in the film. Charles Cullen doesn't really explain is why why he decided to do this. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm curious to see if the documentary shed more light on his actions and his thought process and all that. Yeah, well, yeah. I think this is just a really good exercise also in figuring out or understanding how Hollywood depicts certain scenarios, true true crime, but just like true scenarios that actually happen in real life. Like how much do they get it right and what do they choose to leave out from like mm-hmm. a storytelling perspective? Okay, so- Enough of that. Let's get into it. As a reminder, the movie is called The Good Nurse. The documentary, in case you guys are interested, I actually really, I dare I say, I enjoy the documentary more than the movie. Mm. Uh, So Capturing the Killer Nurse is the documentary, the name of the documentary on Netflix. Mm. Okay. First, it's quite interesting because Amy Lauren, I hope I'm saying that right. Amy Lauren, who is the good nurse in this, who basically takes down Charles Cullen and helps the detectives take him down. She doesn't seem angry or bitter towards charlie at all and i'll Mm. refer to him as charlie for the rest of this uh, episode she speaks rather highly of him actually so there there is a sadness in her voice when she recalls the memory of him uh working with him at the hospital because i think that's where you can kind of tell they were very very close and that is something that is represented in the film they're over at each Mm. other's houses more like him over at hers he's close with her kids and her family uh, and you can you can kind of get that sense through the documentary as well. And she has a sadness of recalling the memory of the person she once called a very close friend. So we get confirmation directly from Amy that Charlie and her were close. And she thought he was a fantastic nurse. He mm-hmm. even at some point became the honorary spokesperson of Somerset Hospital, which is where Amy oh, wow. worked with him. People who knew him said he was very smart, and Amy felt that he was someone who was probably bullied a lot as a kid. He never said that to her or talked to her about that, but she just said he gave off that vibe, which Mm. only made her want to protect him more. The first victim at Somerset was a reverend. I think I may have mentioned this, that I think I said that he was a vicar or someone in a religious institution, and that is the case. He was a reverend named Florin Gall. Florian calls his sister Lucille Gall at 2 a.m. and tells her he's having trouble breathing. So they go to Somerset where his breathing worsens to the point that he needs to be intubated and he's kept overnight at the ICU. So the doctors tell Lucille, the sister in the morning, your brother made it through the night and is slowly progressing. They're cautiously optimistic. 
Amy remembers Reverend Gall because he was with them in the ICU for a while. And that can happen. Like there will be people in the ICU who are there for weeks on end, sometimes months. Sometimes if they're there, gonna if they're gonna be there for a long time, they'll transition them to like a long-term care facility. Point being, she just remembered him because he was there for a while. She remembers he was getting better because he was being moved out of the ICU into a section of the hospital called the CCU, which I believe is the critical care unit. Amy was shocked when she learned that he coded and died because he was on the upward trend of healing. A nurse called the New Jersey Poison Control Center where Dr. Bruce Ruck, who's a pharmacist, uh, picks up the phone. The nurse says that they're trying to investigate a toxicity that occurred in a patient. The patient, she says, hasn't received their DIG dose, which she means digoxin dose, in two days, but their DIG levels continue to climb. Hmm. So now the pharmacist, who's Dr. Rock, he's speaking to the camera and he goes, the half-life, or actually I'm saying, the half-life of DIG is about one and a half to two days. I think we've we've talked about digoxin before on the podcast. Mm -hmm. So this doesn't make any sense. A possible Mm -hmm. situation where the half-life could be affected, meaning that it could continue to climb or not, at least not go down, is if the patient has poor kidney function and is having Mm -hmm. trouble clearing the medication from the body. For example, just like for simplicity's sake, you were given one milligram of digoxin two days ago and you have terrible Mm -hmm. kidneys, let's say, the max amount of dig that you'd have in your body at worst case is one milligram right? Mm-hmm. Because you just, your body just can't clear what it's been given. Right. But your dish levels won't increase. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Like the only way that mm-hmm. your dish level would increase from like say one mig to two migs is if you received another dose. Right. So that's why the pharmacist is sitting there thinking like, no, that's not possible. You can't, your levels don't climb like that mm-hmm. after mm-hmm. two days, especially. So then the nurse goes, this situation happened on the 16th. We had another dish toxicity in the same unit on the 28th. So now Dr. Ruck is scratching his head. He's thinking, the first thing I think of when you say that is a lab error. And the nurse on the other line goes, but the patient died. So Dr. Ruck asked the nurse if anything else was going on that seemed a little bit off. And he asked, mm. if, he asked if any of the patients had hypoglycemia. I'm not sure why he asked this. Because I'm thinking mm-hmm. the first thing I think of is, oh, I know digoxin has a lot of side effects. It has a lot of DDIs, drug interactions. But I don't remember hypoglycemia being one of the side effects. So I just looked it up on my own and it's not one of the side effects. So he may be just like thinking along the lines of like other drugs that can be misused, which is insulin, which would cause mm-hmm. give you hypoglycemia. So the nurse tells Dr. Ruck off the record that they had two patients before the DIG patients who, who strangely became hypoglycemic. Like he was right on the money. So Dr. Ruck goes, I'm going to put this in your hands. You now have a police matter. Mm -hmm. And like implying, like, go tell the police, right? So about a week later, Dr. Ruck calls Somerset Hospital to follow up on what they decided to do. This is very standard procedure for the Poison Control Center. It is, I think it's a requirement by law for the people at the Poison Control Center to follow up on all the cases just to check in and just see how Mm -hmm. it went, just to close it off on their side. So he follows up with this nurse and someone else picks up the the hospital phone and says, you know, oh, we decided to go internal with the investigation. I probably said too much already and then hangs up. So then we have our two detectives that enter the picture, Tim Braun and Danny Baldwin. It is true that the risk management lady gives them essentially nothing 
to go with in, in terms of case evidence. They were expecting all these boxes or at least like a healthy binder of information that the internal team has collected over the past, like how many weeks before they even called them in. But all they got were maybe two pieces of paper. It was actually more than what we, we see in the film. So the detectives mm. confirmed like, we only got like a piece of paper, like a tight piece of paper with just a summary typed up by one of the hospital's attorney. That's it, which is kind of wild. Yeah. But there was a single line in the summary that mentioned Charles Cullen being the nurse in charge of the deceased patient. So mm. they run a background check on Cullen and they find that he has two previous arrests. So Ron calls the station where he was arrested to see if they have any more information in his file. They don't. But mm. on the physical file that they had stored away, there was – he. this is what the detective says. He says there is a, a stick-em note, which is a post-it oh. note. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he's like, there's a stick-em note that says, Penn Trooper Bob Egan called for info, investigating missing med at St. Luke Hospital. And it was just gotcha. there. like, And it's been there for years now. Like no one had followed up on it. It just happened to be on the front. That's the only is that, reason. Is that the moment that's referenced in the movie version where they're like, oh, there's – remember there's mm. the scene where the two detectives call and then they do get information like, oh, yeah, we we had this one file and it just has a sticky note on it that says Dijoxin. Oh. Do you remember that? No, I don't remember Maybe that. Maybe that's the fictionalized version okay. of this event so happening. That's really so. interesting. I don't remember that, mm. but – Okay. I believe you that ha that happened. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that is interesting to me because I just said a bunch of stuff like Penn Troop, Penn State Trooper Bob Egan, blah blah blah. They basically mm -hmm. like cut to the point of what's behind that information, which is essentially mm -hmm. this Dijoxin med went missing, which I find is really interesting. That was just like a storytelling cut to the chase moment. Right. Right. I think you're right. That's yeah. definitely what it was because the reason I say that. The stick'em note, according to Detective Tim Braun, is what blew this case wide open. Mm -hmm. He says without this, this case likely would have just gone cold. So what was also true is Amy's heart condition. Because I, I found from research that it, her heart condition was played up in the film. But actually, from this documentary, from Amy's own words, she it was pretty serious. She didn't need a heart transplant. That one, that part was dramatized. She does say in the doc that her prognosis wasn't good to the point where she didn't know how much time she had left with her children. She, like the film, didn't want to tell anyone at work because they might fire her or ask her to go on leave, which means she wouldn't get health insurance or have money to pay the bills. There was no such thing as like she didn't currently have health insurance and she had to work a certain amount of time before she got it. That's not the situation. Ultimately, she has to keep quiet until eventually Charlie sees her collapse on the floor. And mm. he's there with her. He does get her a med illegally. I mean, he just pulls a med from the Pixis drawer and gives it to her to take. And she takes mm. it. And she shares her secret with Charlie. And after that, he does help her tremendously. And that becomes like their shared tiny little secret together. So as the detectives build their timeline of Charlie's work experiences, they see he worked at Warren Hospital. And at Warren Hospital, there were other deaths. One of them was someone related to a woman named Sharon Dean. Sharon shares how her Aunt Helen was killed at Warren Hospital. Sharon is cousins with Larry Dean, whose mother was Helen. Larry was mm -hmm. incredibly close to his mom. 
He never married. He His mom was just his life. Like He did everything with his mom. He always took care of her, looked after her since they were kids. And Sharon just remembers always going to their house. Like Helen was basically like another mom to her. So Helen goes to Warren Hospital for a routine procedure. She's doing fine. And she was getting discharged. The night before, Larry is at the hospital visiting his mom when a male nurse tells him to leave the room. The male nurse pulls the hospital curtains around the mom. And so Larry's just just outside waiting by like the nursing station. When Larry hears his mom cry out, ouch. So Larry rushes back to the room as the male nurse runs out. The frick? Yeah. And he asks his mom what happened. And she says, that man stuck me with a needle. So Sharon's telling the story. And he's she no, she says, like, Larry always carried a pocket knife with him. It was just his habit to have it with him. So he pulls mm-hmm. out the magnifying glass that's in the pocket knife. And sure mm-hmm. enough, there is a tiny needle prick in her right inner thigh. Mm-hmm. After that, the ambulance comes to transport Helen. This is, this is totally unrelated. The ambulance was coming anyways because she was getting discharged, remember. But she is right. older. So I believe they're transporting her to like a rehab or a long-term care facility. So as she's getting into the ambulance, she's being discharged, all that good stuff. Larry basically goes back to his house to pick up her slippers and then meet them back at the rehab center. So no sooner had he stepped through the door that the ambulance calls and says his mother died. Oh, wow. It's that quick. Mm. I feel like the movie made it seem like he was someone who was very passive. Passive in his poisoning. That seems really active like that seems really aggressive Mm -hmm. i I totally hear you it seems aggressive and risky like he's Mm -hmm. essentially doing it right in front of the sun right or at least there's other people around i don't know it just feels i don't know not that he wants to get caught i don't that's not the right feeling Mm -hmm. but it it Mm -hmm. seems like he's being more in the out in the open about it Right. Kind of this feeling of casualness with it. Exactly. Carelessness. Very interesting. Which makes it even more chilling. Yeah. So Larry immediately goes to the prosecutor's office and reports that his mother was murdered. Like he is sure. They subsequently do toxicology tests on Helen. They do every tox test imaginable on every drug imaginable except digoxin, which is Mm. honestly very strange to me because usually that's that's on that list. Right. Maybe not at the time. As a result, the Warren case is closed. They don't find mm-hmm. anything for all intents and purposes. Yet, Larry knows in his heart that this male nurse was his mother's killer. After the incident at Warren Hospital, Cullen voluntarily admits himself to a psych ward. And that's all we kind of get from that. We don't know what comes from that. But then fast forward to Somerset. So that just for a reminder for everybody, Somerset is the last place that he worked which is with Amy, where he gets caught. So fast forward to Somerset, there becomes chatter in the ICU among the nurses that the labs were off. Like something's off. Like these numbers don't look right to me on the sheets, like the whatever. The the quotes coming in or what people are saying are another day, my patient, their glucose is 22, which is very, very low, by the way. And everyone wholeheartedly thought it was a lab issue. In fact, whenever something fell off with the numbers, or with a drug, people would go to Charlie, which is, I think, so 
ironic, obviously with hindsight, but people will go to him because he was almost like an encyclopedia when it came to drugs. Mm. He knew so much, like in a way, like he was, he probably would have loved to go to pharmacy school because he just loved understanding how drugs worked in the body, their effect and all these things. So people just went to him. Amy said he was brilliant with drugs. He knew everything about him. And so he was just kind of this go-to person for that kind of stuff. Danny Baldwin, one of the detectives in the film, basically snaps at this point. They, they're they kind of like on – I don't know if you remember this, but they're like on the verge of like figuring things out. They, they know it's Charlie, but they just don't have the evidence to get him. And they're also frustrated with the risk management lady and also the internal investigation because they're not helping them in any way. And they need more information that the risk management team has. So then, I don't know if you remember for the film, but Danny Baldwin goes and basically like yells at the risk management lady and like tells her to sit down. And is like, give me right. your stuff, whatever. Yeah. Loses his cool. Yeah. And he's pretty much accuses her like, you know exactly what you've been doing withholding information. And I say when you can go, not you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So he doesn't say that that happens. But the reason why that even comes about is because risk management destroyed all the papers and documents that they found. This is this is what actually happened in real life. Mm-hmm. They just destroy everything and covering their tracks. And this is what the detective says, like point blank. He's like, this hospital was covering up a murder, point blank. Mm. Yeah. that There's yeah. no other way to put it. I mean, all the hospitals that he went to, they were also not holding themselves accountable. Oh, Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So Tim Braun calls the New Jersey Poison Control Center and gets on the phone with Dr. Ruck. And he has no idea about Dr. Ruck's previous history with these other cases that he already had like a prior history of talking to them about the digoxin patients and telling them that they should go to the police. He has no idea about that. He basically Mm -hmm. calls the New Jersey Poison Control just to learn more about digoxin. As a drug, of course, related to the case. So Braun is asking about digoxin, and then Ruck goes, oh, is this in relation to the incidents at Somerset Hospital? We've been telling them that they have a murderer for a while now, but they're not doing anything about it. So Braun tells him, I'm going to be down at your office in 15 minutes. Like, don't go anywhere. Poison Control records all of their calls. It is this quality control very standard. So they had recordings of all the times that they called Somerset to check up on the status of this digoxin issue. And they play all these calls in the documentary. Mm-hmm. The last call they made to Somerset, they clearly say, as in like the Poison Control Center, they clearly say, if there's somebody out there purposely doing this, then if you don't report it to the police and somebody else dies, I would not waste that time. Like, you need to do this now. And then whoever's on the other line at the hospital says, thank you for your input. And that's it. Mm. It's very odd. Yeah, that's disgusting disconcerting yeah and frustrating i would be losing my mind trying to get info yeah absolutely and you just think like why like from the poison control's perspective like why is there no sense of urgency like i feel like i'm acting with more urgency than the people who like called me in the first place to talk to me about it you know because it's a business (laughs) yeah yeah no that's true that's all it comes down to (laughs) it really is true it would be three months later before the hospital even reaches out to the police about this oh my goodness that's so sad it's so so sad sad. like because this is an institution that advertises itself to be something that helps the community and helps people and heals Mm -hmm. and i think that's what is so i don't frustrating for me because i'm just like you're a hospital you would think that everyone's health 
and the outcome of their health and whether someone's death is suspicious within the hospital facility is that would be paramount that, you know, yeah. like everyone would be on board to want to help with that. Yeah. But it's, it's like contradictory, you know? Oh, that at the end yeah. of the day, they're like, we don't want to talk about this if we don't have to. <laughs> like, That's exactly right. And I was going to say like the, honestly, the only reason that they had to even come forward with this, they didn't want you. If they had their way, I guarantee you, they would not even open their mouths to the police. Yeah. And mm-hmm. that's the frustrating part. They would have just probably noticed pretty immediately okay this dude's been accessing our the workaround in our system the pixie whatever it's called pixie pixis <laughs> pixis pixie little pixie <laughs> this this nurse has clearly been figuring out the loophole in the pixis system and it's clearly taking drugs which we have a problem with because that's our money yeah you know what i mean like yeah but we can't let that get out because that's inappropriate behavior and we can't claim mm-hmm. that we hired someone like that that's bad on us for hiring somebody like that exactly so we're just gonna let them go on the sly <laughs> they probably would have just they just would have done that and wouldn't have bothered to tell or report anything oh yeah and yeah. i'm just saying i'm sitting here because you're saying how it's frustrating for you and you're s- s- appalled shocked all the things i'm sitting here yeah. thinking like Ugh. Like, like, like big surprise for real honestly like i'm yeah. so i feel like i'm so jaded and disillusioned at this point that i it doesn't surprise me in the slightest i was just talking to my sister-in-law who is a doctor herself and she was telling me how that she doesn't get any sick days that's like not a thing yeah, like doctors and hospitals clinics they don't get sick days they have to right. use their pto for sick yeah. days I'm like, is that how is how does that even make any sense? Like, I don't understand. Every other place, I would think, I, I I don't know. Maybe it's just like corporate. I'm not sure, but you get sick mm-hmm. days. That's like part of your benefits. It's kind of ridiculous because she was telling me how she has a young daughter who is in like that stage, young stage of getting sick. Like she's constantly getting sick from daycare and things like that. Mm-hmm. And she was saying how I've already used up pretty much all my PTO to like stay at home and take care of my daughter. And I'm like, wait, you don't have six days? She was like, no. <laughs> I'm just like, what? I can't. I cannot. God. Anyways. Yeah. So yes, it would be three months before the hospital even reaches out to the police. Uh, and it's the detective's belief that the hospital was covering up the desk because if this got excuse me, if this got out, then what person would want to go to hospital where a nurse is killing people? As Megan right. said, it is a business at the end of the day. You're not going to want to go to hospital where people are killing you, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, I'm not saying that what that is right or wrong. That is just mm-hmm. the lens that this is being viewed through by the hospital people. So this sparked major concern in both Baldwin and Braun at this after this, I'm just going to call them B and B, B and B, B and B, detectives B and B. So they go back in Cullen's history to see if any other hospitals did the same. Now we're going to call back to that stickum note, the post-it note. B and B talked to Trooper Egan, who was formally investigating a possible series of murders going on at St. Luke's Hospital in Bethlehem, mm-hmm. Pennsylvania. A nurse working there was brave enough to report to authorities that they felt Charlie Cullen was killing their patients in the ICU. Hmm. So I want to briefly talk about that nurse. So it's 2002, and Pat was a nurse in the ICU. 
she remembers Charlie being quirky, but then she goes like, but I see you nurses are like that. <laughs> They're all kind of quirky. <laughs> so it's like, so I didn't think it was cope. weird. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so she said that two times in a week, she said almost a week apart, Pat had patients mm. who were very, very stable and then coded. Mm. It made no sense to her. So she made a list of all the patients who passed during that time, as well as the dates, the times, and the meds that they were given. Like, bless her. Mm -hmm. She counted 67 deaths, of which she felt wow. 40 of them were during when Cullen, Charles Cullen, was working. Yeah. That's a lot. That is a lot of people. And you can see it in her face. Like, she says it in the document. She's like, I thought that was too high. Like, I was like, that's, that's not just not possible. Who would do that? And I think you even said this on the first part, Megan, because at the end, they talk about how they estimate he killed around 400 people. And right. you were saying, like, that number sounds so, so high. And that's exactly yeah, what Pat I was very was doubtful. No, yeah. but I agree with you. And Pat felt the same way. She was just like, how is it possible? Like, if this is if this number hypothetically is true, he did kill mm -hmm. 40 or 67 people. How is it that no one has stopped to question it? Or how is it that no one has seen him or caught him in the act? Like those right. are the number of times he's done that, the probability just increases of him being caught. So what's going on? I don't know. People just willfully t turning a blind eye. Yeah. So Pat felt that Charlie was ta likely targeting two of her patients that she was particularly fond of, which mm. is probably why she took notice of it more so than maybe mm. other nurses. One of them, one of her patients was this, she says, this giant of a man, like had humongous hands just like a big guy right mm -hmm. and his name was sam and he was in a coma when he comes in to the hospital mm -hmm. or into her icu unit a few days later sam starts groaning loudly and no one knew what the, they just hear this loud noise and they're like what the hell is that and they realize mm -hmm. it's sam he's like waking up from his coma and he's talking like pat realized he's actually saying something and he was saying hmm. i love you but he was just like groaning it out like long like sentences right hmm. interesting and so that's just how he'd respond anytime pat would come on duty to take care of him gotcha a few days later after that he would start singing you're my sunshine to her whenever she came into the room just like they had like a very sweet relationship that way patient yeah. nurse relationship yeah. right right he coded shortly after when Charlie was on and died. So Pat reached out to her manager and director to let them know that she was now sure that Charlie was killing people. Mm -hmm. And they told her, nope, we're sure he's not. Pat is horrified. Like She's like, I'm shaking driving home that night because I was like, I felt so alone. I was like, I, he's killing people. He's killing people. Yeah. You would at least think that if you put in a tip or like a concern yeah because i'm sure that's what you're trained to do when you're going through nursing school mm -hmm. plus going through your new hire orientation whatever hospital you join mm -hmm. i'm sure it's like if if you see this behavior or whatever or you know failure in this sort of compliance we encourage you to report blah blah, blah. so it, how invalidating is it to finally be like yeah. i have something i genuinely feel concern about mm -hmm. and I'm reporting it because I'm hoping the higher authorities will take it seriously and then to just be like, okay, well, thanks for sharing. 
anybody else in the class? Anybody else? Or like straight up being like, you're wrong. You're stupid. Right. Don't ever say like, that again. You, this concern is clearly made up. Like, right. oh, terrible. Completely invalidating her. They tell her like, nope, he's not doing anything. So that night she drives home and she's just at a loss of what to do. So she calls her mm-hmm. good friend who also happens to be a police officer. She tells him what's going on, and he encourages her to report it to state police. So then eventually the case is turned over to state police, but the investigation is so slow. Maybe a month later, the CEO of the hospital calls the entire nursing staff into the lounge and announces that the investigation on on Charles Cullen is now closed. The state police didn't find anything. After that, Pat started hearing her coworkers saying, Whoever this nurse is who reported this caused a lot of havoc and nearly caused St. Luke's the construction of our new hospital site. Well, essentially, in order to secure the contract for building, the hospital needed to show they essentially were clean as a whistle. And if they had continued on with this case with Charlie or found anything against him, then that new construction site would be gone. It was easier to send Charlie on his way with a nice recommendation rather than deal with what he did directly. So B&B at this point knew and knows that Charlie Cullen was the perpetrator behind all of these deaths that have been happening speckled and sprinkled throughout his past hospital stints. So now they Mm -hmm. just need solid evidence. B&B wanted to focus on the Pixis machines, which is a computerized automatic medication dispensing machine. So In order to access Pixis, you either swipe a badge and or log into the machine's computer with a username passcode. You just type in the med you want, the strength, and how much. And it's kind of like a vending machine. So a drawer will pop out uh, and a box will open that contains what you asked for. This is more like a fun fact, but like on one of my hospital rotations, I had to literally... They had Pixis machines, and then they were changing to a whole different system, which was like another automatic dispensing system. But I was in charge of literally programming the whole system in the hospital and filling it up with all the meds they could ever need. Wow. And I just did that for six weeks straight. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of a cool project. It was a cool project. Yeah. I Basically, it got I didn't care. I was like, it gets me out of everyone's hair. I don't need to talk to anybody. I literally would listen to true crime podcasts all day and just like boop, 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 all day. <laughs> That's so cool. And and it was perfect because no one else in the hospital knew how to do it except for me. So mm-hmm. they're like, oh, yeah, Harini can go and do that all day. They wouldn't bother me. <laughs> nice. I had a nice. skill no one had. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah. That's what you want to be. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. When B&B first meets the risk management lady, her name is Mary Lund. She tells him that the Pixis machines only go back 30 days in their drug dispensing history. So mm. this is what you do, folks. This is the mark of a good detective or good researcher. He does his own research. He does not take mm-hmm. her word for it or take it at face value. He calls the manufacturer of Pixis in California, who is shocked to hear that, oh, this only goes back 30 days. He is like, absolutely not. They said all the data needed is retrievable from the unit since the unit gets set up. This is the moment where Baldwin goes back to Mary Lund, and this is like the scene where he like yells at her, Mm -hmm. but he just basically tells her firmly to give them the data now or they will confiscate the machines. So Mary Lund miraculously Mm -hmm. comes up with all the missing data and gives it to them. At this point, B&B don't want Cullen interacting with patients anymore, but they also don't have the grounds to charge him yet. 
So they instruct Mm. Somerset to fire or I think they let him go under the pretense that he put the wrong dates on his application. So that is correct. Right. But I – Okay. I don't know if it was clear to you, Megan, but it was not clear to me that that was coming from the detective's instruction. That was not clear. In the movie, The Good Nurse, it definitely seemed like it was risk management that decided to Mm -hmm. fire him because of incorrect dates on his application. I I don't think they ever associate the detectives with that decision. Yeah. I think, in fact, they make it seem like like the detectives and... Amy find out that he's let go and they're like, what the fuck? He's out on the streets. Yeah. They just let him go? Yeah. Like, what? I agree. Yeah. So that that was actually something that the detectives did, which is interesting to learn. Yeah. Interesting. Do, did they extrapolate on why they encouraged that decision just to get him out of the hospital? Yeah. they Because now that they got more information, information i believe through the pixis machines um Mm -hmm. they figured out okay yeah like that was like the one tiny bit of information that they needed to figure out like is he actually the one doing this they're like okay yeah it Mm -hmm. is now we don't want him interacting with any more patients we need to to get off of like we just need him to not be working so that was they just came up with some reason some excuse to fire him gotcha so now with charlie gone bnb feel now is a good time to speak with his co-workers. So Amy remembers the detectives coming in and asking a whole bunch of questions. The nurses felt if Charlie could get fired, any of them could get fired. So there was a lot of mm-hmm. fear around answering the questions at all, rather than like truthfully. And true to the film, Mary Lund, the risk management lady, she requires herself to be in the room at all times when the nurses were being questioned by B&B, which of course mm-hmm. makes it even diff- more difficult to get honest answers. Amy remembers being called into the room and she says, I just remember saying bullshit a lot. Like, this is bullshit. You like going after Charlie is bullshit, blah, 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 blah. This investigation is bullshit. Mm -hmm. And she just felt like this entire thing was a witch hunt on Charlie, et cetera. Then, Mm -hmm. and this is true, for some reason, Mary Lund is called out of the office. No one knows why, but she is called out. It's pretty interesting. And this is where you have to give – you have to give it to that gut instinct of a detective because Baldwin actually liked the fact that Amy was hardcore defending her friend. Mm-hmm. And he says that was the only reason he decided to take a chance and reveal some of the information he had while Mary was out of the room. Cause I would not react that way. I'd be like, Oh man, she really likes Charlie. Like he's, that's a close friend of hers. I'm not going to try to push and prod, but he decides right. to double down and, he essentially, while Amy's gone, he shows Amy Charlie's Pixis history. He basically slides over this piece of paper that he's not allowed mm-hmm. to show her. And mm-hmm. Baldwin remembers Amy's entire face and demeanor change, like a 180, yeah. like it was a different person. She's shaking her head, saying, wow, clapping her hand over her mouth in shock. And from Amy's point of view, she says, it was so obvious that there was something sinister in that paperwork. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. she speaks that like it was like my vision started to like zoop, like zoom in, and mm-hmm. it takes her back to this memory of her being at the nurses station when she saw one of her patients go into VTAC, which is basically mm-hmm. like, ta- like a certain type of tachycardia. A- Amy yells "code blue" and she runs into the room, and Charlie is already there, mm-hmm. and he's injecting something into the patient. So Amy asks, what med are you giving? And he says, lidocaine. And Amy Uh, says, I thought that was odd. 
And for a brief, brief moment, she thought, Mm -hmm. why is he doing that? Hmm. But she doesn't push because, and no one would do that. But during the this is mm-hmm. after after she saw the Pixis paperwork. No, like basically she sees she's having a she's, recall. Uh, she's having a flashback. Exactly. Okay. She doesn't push more on like why he's giving lidocaine because they're in the middle of a code. The patient's mm-hmm. heart has stopped, and now it's not mm-hmm. the time to ask questions. I'd like to pause briefly and give a shout out to Talia because off the top of my head, I didn't recall that lidocaine as a typical crash cart med. Um, but Talia confirmed that it is second line to af- after amiodarone. Okay. So you would use this while when someone's coding? Potentially. Like it is one of the meds that you could use. But again, it's second line and there is an order of things that you would use. Like ep- epinephrine is the first thing you'd use. And if that doesn't work, you mm-hmm. go to something else and so on and so forth, right? Gotcha, so gotcha. this is like second line after if everything else like kind of doesn't work if that makes sense. Gotcha. So she, like a na- a more natural response would have been like, he would have said, I'm using lidocaine. And then maybe she could have said something like, did you already use epinephrine? Correct. But it's one of those weird things. It's like, you don't want to, he's, he, he's a friend. He's also a fellow colleague and nurse. She wants to assume that he has done everything he can to already help this patient so far. So she doesn't want to question. Yeah. Plus like the patient's well, basically you know dead on, on the you table. You know what I think, Rudy? That's not a true friend. Because I think if you were a true friend, you I would have no problem. I'd be like, hey, Harini, uh, did you use epinephrine? Yeah. I mean, I trust you. Yeah. I, would always, I would always preface. I'd be like, girl, I know you know your business, but I just want to double check. You use epinephrine? Okay, okay. Then it's good. Yeah. You know? No, fair. Totally fair. I have no problem calling out my friends. <laughs> you know? That is fair. I I don't know. She she didn't do anything in that moment. Um, maybe it's, it is a high yeah, pressure. It's not her fault. It is <laughs> when someone's coding in front of you. It's always a high pressure moment. So who knows? Like we, we would all yeah. act differently, I suppose. But yeah, but going absolutely. going back to what Talia was saying, she said in her experience, though, although um, mm-hmm. lidocaine can be used, in her experience, she's never seen lidocaine used. Because the reason why I wanted to text her that was because. I, I w- it wasn't clear to me why uh, Amy thought it was odd. Like that was like the one moment where she had a second, like a, a doubt in her mind about him. But then she didn't, mm. she was, it seemed to her like this is odd, but it's also okay. Cause she didn't, she wasn't mm. like, get that away from the patient, you know? She was just like, okay. Right. And they just continued with it. So I'm like, it wasn't too far off out of the picture where it's not something that you wouldn't not use, right? Right, right. So I just wanted to confirm because that, yeah. that wasn't really talked about in the doc- documentary. Anyways, okay. Gotcha. They start doing chest compressions and Charlie continues to give the patient lidocaine when the resident mm. arrives. The resident mm. gets to the code and Amy, as a code leader, walks the resident through the progress of the code. And the resident mm-hmm. goes, who gave the patient lidocaine? Mm-hmm. Amy says, I did. I gave Amy. the patient lidocaine. Amy. She says, I'm the code leader. I ordered the lidocaine. The resident turns to Amy and says, she's allergic to lidocaine. Okay. Another question. Was this patient? Well, she's the code leader, but this was this one of her patients that she worked with? You know how she had a... Um, mm-hmm created like relationships with certain patients mm-hmm. was this someone that she was monitoring did she recognize that the patient was allergic to lidocaine before she took the fall that's what i'm asking okay got it because then i'm like then 
then there's a lapse of information on her end too that I'm like, if she was working with this patient, then she would have known right away, you know? And again, I'm not like, oh, like this is her mistake too. But I'm like, girl, before you take the fall, I would have thought you would have known (laughs) that that the patient's allergic. That's a good call out. And for that reason, that makes me think that this is not one of her patients then. Okay. Yeah, yeah. She may know the patient because ICU is not big. Like you'll see these patients. But she may not – that patient may not have been assigned specifically to her. Because I'm just like, oh, my God, girl, you just – you took the fall for something you did not do. And it's a double boo-boo. Yeah. Because the resident is now looking at you like you're an (laughs) idiot. Dude. My God. Okay, so then what happens? (laughs) I mean, like what do you even do in that moment? Like your heart just drops. Like my heart dropped when she said this in the documentary because I'm like – that is a huge, huge, fatal, fatal, literally a fatal mistake. I mean, I and you <sighs> hypothetically, you couldn't take an EpiPen then and be like, okay, we <laughs> we go to stage one, bring it back. I mean, I guess you no? could try, but dude, like, who knows how long Charlie was giving this patient lidocaine before they even coded? And once wow. a patient codes, their heart, their heart is stopped. They're dead. They're yeah. they're okay. clinically dead. I see. You know, now you're just trying to like reverse that. And he was still giving lidocaine while they're doing chest compressions. So in your opinion, or I mean, we really haven't come to the conclusion of this moment Mm -hmm. and how the people in the documentary felt about this moment. But in your like, in your opinion, do you think that he very intentionally was giving lidocaine? But also like, do we, do they express that they believe he's the reason this person was coding anyway like what like is he the cause for this patient to code and was he intentionally giving lidocaine being like i caused them the code and now i'm giving them something allergic like is it double so or what or yeah the lidocaine is what caused the code oh does that make sense okay so very intentional it's very intentional okay yeah gotcha and and the reason why i say it's even more intentional is because megan like this is this is like day one stuff, like literally day mm. one. Like the first thing that they drill into you in any kind of healthcare, like I don't care if you're a nurse, doc, like a physician, pharmacist, the very first thing when you look at a patient's chart, what are they allergic to? And yeah. you do not give that to them. That yeah. is just drilled in from day one. So when I heard that, I'm like, oh my God, that is the most rookie rookie mistake ever it is just right it is so avoidable that's the reason why right. it is so avoidable anyways so that's why she says like she kind of like zoop, like we're back into like she's in front of like the pixis paper she's in front of detective baldwin and she just remembers she's like i had walked in on him murdering someone poisoning someone and i had not i did not do anything and she just well you can see like her whole face just like drops even like retelling it so now we zoom back. Amy is sitting in front of Detective Danny Baldwin, who asks her, and he and I, he mouths it to her actually, because I think at this point Maryland is back in the room. So he mm. mouths to her, "Amy, will you help me?" Mm. So Amy is Amy working with the, the detectives is truly the turning point in this investigation because the piles of paper these guys had might as well have been written in a different language because Amy was their translator. They had all these papers, but they didn't know how to make sense of it right? They Mm -hmm. had all these lists Mm -hmm. of meds, but they don't know what is significant and what's not. Like they have all these meds that Charlie took out of the Pixie machine. And she could look at these papers and quickly identify what was blatantly off. 
So this is consistent with the film that Charlie did find a bug in the system that allowed him to take deadly meds like digoxin and insulin without it showing on his history uh, Mm. that he actually took the med. Instead, it would show up as a cancellation. Well, so this is why I wanted to talk about this because I think this is like a relatively new-ish thing. Obviously, this happened in the early 2000s because I'm just thinking about it. Like if you have a cancellation, essentially what he was doing is, okay, so he goes to Pix Machine, he types his stuff in and he says, okay, I want to get three tablets of digoxin, let's say. Okay, Mm -hmm. so the, the thing opens up, he quickly presses cancel, he still takes out the three digoxin and then it closes it, right? Here's the thing. There, there is now a discrepancy in the numbers because where it says there was five digoxin, now there's actually two. Do you know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? But in the system, yeah. it still counts as five. But if you open that drawer, there's only two. So yeah. we're, the count is off. But you would have to go in and manually count what's mm-hmm. there and what's not. Mm-hmm. And I'm just saying, like, I can see this becoming something that would be a little harder to track Mm -hmm. because even though the numbers wouldn't line up, you could hypothetically say, well, maybe there was another nurse who logged in and got two digoxin. Mm -hmm. And that's why those two, like, that's why there's three total. You know what I mean? Because I get what you're saying, but you'd have to check it right as it's happening, right? Yes and no, because the only reason why I bring that up is because at... I'm pretty sure it's now standard across all hospitals. I definitely had to do it with all the hospitals I worked at. Every mm. other week, all the pharmacist jobs, like there's a rotation, you go in on all the machines and you count. You literally oh, okay. count. And and you you cross-reference what's being told in the machine versus what's actually in the drawers. And you yeah. literally count one by one, whatever, right? Um, right? But you would still have to like compare every nurse's logging in to see what they grab you do yeah you do and that's the thing like and and that's the point like there's i wouldn't say it's it's rare to have a Mm -hmm. discrepancy because Mm -hmm. maybe because of things like this honestly like they are very strict on the nurses like you get it's like strikes like you get certain strikes if you have Mm -hmm. discrepancies it's a really it's like a really bad thing to have like quote unquote on your record so no one wants to do that right Mm mm-hmm so whenever there is a discrepancy and you go in, you look at the nurse's log, you go through it, you go and talk to that nurse and be like, can you walk me through what happened here? Where is that med? You you have to find what happened to that med. So there is a very strict system. So I don't know if this is something that just got happened, that developed later. I'm assuming yes. But anyways, mm-hmm. that was just something that popped into my head because I'm like, how the hell did no one catch these numbers that are off? It worked out in his favor. Let's put it that way. While Amy is going through these Pixis history lists with the detectives, her phone rings in her house. Okay. She picks it up. It's Mary Lund, the risk management lady. Mm-hmm. Amy's weirded out because she's calling her at her house. And Mary starts questioning her. And meanwhile, this just so you guys know, this is the same day that she speaks to the detectives. And like she has like this realization of all like, you know, Charlie going in with lidocaine and all that stuff. So it's the same day. Mm-hmm. So Mary starts questioning her and asks her if she spoke to the detectives after the meeting and advises her to not speak with them without a representative from the hospital, basically threatening her and scaring her. And in a way, Mary is right. Like Amy has a lot to lose. She has her reputation, her job, her health care that she needed to right. treat her cardiomyopathy. If she was going to continue to work with these guys, it needed to be a family decision. Remember, she has mm-hmm. two young daughters. So 
She speaks to her 11-year-old daughter, letting her know there's someone at mommy's work who is hurting people, possibly killing people, and mommy has an opportunity to stop him from hurting anyone else. Mm -hmm. Uh, Her daughter says, if we have the opportunity to potentially stop a killer, then we have to do this. Like, of course we have to do this, like she tells her mom. Right. And Amy is just floored. She's like, an eleven-year-old had moral had more moral aptitude than someone who was responsible for risk management in a hospital. Right, right. Just embarrassing. But also, I, I, going back to Amy, I understand. Like, yeah, like, of course, kudos to children. Children <laughs> have much more pure hearts. Yes. Um, but I also think of it as you know. Amy recalled that instant where she literally witnessed him poisoning, but still was like, it's so much of a risk for me to say anything because then I'm risking a friendship. Mm -hmm. Remember, like, Mm -hmm. ultimately, that's why she hesitated to say anything then. She didn't want to, like, doubt her friend or whatever. And that's such a natural response that I'm just like, it's to me, it's not even the risk. The risk management thing definitely is amoral. Like, I'm like, hospitals do better. you money sucking machines yeah but just psychologically when we become adults we mm-hmm. think so much about the possibilities of like what am i putting at risk if i decide to really step up and maybe say something that's uncomfortable mm-hmm. whereas a kid is just like dude <laughs> this fool's killing people yes you have to help yeah. rather than oh you know that he did he was doing something odd but I'm not going to question it. You know, it's even small things like that, that I'm like, we need to be brave and just tell people how we feel. (laughs) No, I I agree. I'm like, how refreshing and freeing is it for this child to just think so clear? Like, it's honestly, she's thinking so clearly. Like, she's not Mm -hmm. thinking all of these things and like trying to like basically talk herself out of things like we do as adults essentially is what it is and doubting ourselves like we all have the answers we all have the answers right in front of us we just turn a blind eye as you said so amy starts working with them she's like yeah fuck yeah we're gonna do this <laughs> she's like yeah let's, let's take these motherfuckers down okay uh one of the first things she asked them is do you have the reports from cerner and the mm. B&B are looking at each other like, who's Cerner? And she's like, not who, it's a what? <laughs> so Sorry, Cerner... <laughs> laugh. It made me laugh. <laughs> and so Cerner is a system that they use for housing patient records and reports. Without that, Amy said it would be incredibly difficult to metaphorically, but literally, place the syringe in Charlie's hand. But the detectives, they don't have access to that system. So Amy, mm. knowing full well that if she was caught, she would be charged by the institution and most certainly fired, started printing out reams of patient information at work when no one was watching. Mm. She'd pack the papers in her work bag and drive it to the detectives. She was evidently risking her life, but all they needed to prove was one death to get him. So she was like, if all I need to do is just one death, I'm going to keep printing these papers. But also to do that, they needed a body. The detectives felt Reverend Florin Gall would be the best bet, even though he died several months prior. So they do the horrible task of reaching out to his surviving sister, Lucille, who gives them consent to exhume the body, which is mm-hmm. a very emotional and re-traumatizing thing, of course. Right. But she does it because she was like, his sister said, as a reverend, he devoted his life to helping people. And even in death, he continues to help. Mm. Yes. While this is going on, Charlie calls Amy to get to tell her 
he got a new job and he's so excited. The detectives knew, first of all, that's so fast. That's so fast. So fast. Yeah. My goodness. The detectives knew they need to act fast before he had the chance to potentially kill anyone else at his new job. So they asked Amy to plan a lunch with him and wear a wire. She's terrified, of course, going into the restaurant. And mm-hmm. it's not so much lunch. I think it's like because it shows like it's closer to evening time, like almost like happy hour time. So when she sees Charlie, he, for the first time ever, hugs her. And she's terrified that he's going to feel the wire or the little black box at the small of her back. So the wiretapping scene at the diner is completely different to what actually happened. As I said, like minor changes. It happened at night. They play the actual wiretap recording, not the entire thing. So I'm not sure how the conversation started, but Charlie starts talking. Like in the diner, he doesn't say anything. Remember, he gets mad and I was like, I'm not talking right. about this. And he like talks about other things. He he talks. Oh, okay. yeah. Interesting. Which, interesting. There's a lot of things I'm like, oh, that's interesting why they didn't just why they chose to do it the other way. Yeah, because I, I yeah. almost feel like the documentary, like the actual story, is a lot more interesting than what they showed in the film in the film. So I was yeah. like, oh, this is an interesting storytelling take. He says, when he first started out, there was an incident with low mm-hmm. blood sugar at Warren Hospital. He says at Warren okay. Hospital, a patient died 24 hours after he'd been a nurse there. And someone, he says, said, the son had said that I injected her. So this is okay. Larry. So this is a recall to that one story where Correct. he got... Where, where she even said, he just pricked me. Mm-hmm. So this okay. is talking about Helen Dean, which is Larry Dean's mother. So it seems like Charlie is saying that these strings of events happened to him, not because of him. Like that's the way he's speaking to Amy about things that, are, that have happened in the past. He says he just happened to be around when these bad things happened. And it unfortunately made him an easy target. So Amy asks, what about Father Gall? What happened with him? Because remember, that's the only person they have exhumed the body of because they found high levels of digoxin in his body. So like that's confirmed. They just need him to confess now. Right. Charlie says, I can't. And Amy goes, I know you can. I see you and I'm not stupid. So why? You're so good. So why? Let me help you. Hmm. Then the wire goes dead. Amy says, so this is her like filling in the gaps. Amy says she was looking at someone at that point who wasn't Charlie. He stiffened, he cocked his head to the side looking at her, and his voice changed. And he just Mm. says, I want to go down fighting, whatever that means. Basically, the detectives arrest Cullen on the spot in this diner or restaurant, wherever they are, and they hold him for a possible murder for Reverend Florin Gall. He Mm. will not talk. So detectives B&B, they call Amy and ask her to come down to the station to speak with him as a last shot to get him to confess. So this is all like in Mm. line with the film. She knew, like, in that moment, as she's walking to the station, as she's walking to his cell, she's thinking in her head, I will do anything to get a confession out of him. So Mm. she says to him, quote, my life as I know it is about to end because of my implication Mm -hmm. in all of this. Mm -hmm. You get to be my hero in all of this. You do, Charlie. I'm going to ask you one question. How did you kill Father Gall? He looks at her and he says... I injected him with digoxin. He just comes out with all of it. Wow. And he confesses it all to the detectives after that. Pat, the nurse from Warren Hospital, the You Are My Sunshine patient, like that was her patient. 
she speaks on how Charlie also used a drug called Vecaronium. So up until this point, we only know that he's used digoxin and he would insert insulin into saline bags. She also talks about like how he used this other drug called Vecaronium, which is horrible. This drug is a paralytic. So a patient would be completely alert and awake, but unable to move, blink, or breathe as they died because eventually their diaphragm would also become paralyzed, making them unable to physically inhale or exhale. Helen Dean remembers her cousin, Larry, who knew from the beginning that Charlie killed his mother. He was insistent and wanted to live to see this man get caught for his crimes. Unfortunately, he wouldn't. Although Charles Cullen was the one committing the crimes, the hospitals who knew or even had an inkling of knowing what was happening and did nothing about it are complicit in his crimes for enabling his killings by giving glowing recommendations so he could get a new job. There's a clip, like a a news clip at the end of this that is just absolutely disgusting. Dennis Miller is the CEO of Somerset Hospital, and this is what he says in an interview after the trials and sentencing. The reporter asks if he takes any responsibility for this. He He's so quick. He goes, absolutely not. We take responsibility for investigating this guy, which led to his arrest. I'm extremely proud of Dr. Kors and Mary Lund, who led the investigation at our hospital. We were the first hospital to identify his activities that led to his arrest and capture. The reporter cuts him off and asks, mm. but could you have done a more thorough background check? Referring to like if they had done so, they would have seen he had a record of being arrested right. twice. Right. He again goes, absolutely not. He also says they did a complete criminal background check. But again, if they had actually done that, they would have seen his arrest. So that mm-hmm. means they saw that and decided he was good to hire anyways. This documentary similarly ends with some final updates and statistics. Colin admits to murdering 29 patients and attempted to kill six more. He wow. was sentenced to 18 consecutive life sentences in March 2006. And similar to the film, experts believe he may have killed as many as 400 people, which would make him the most prolific serial killer in American history. Wow. Something that I I will add that was not in the film is he does talk about his why. Like, why does he do this? He basically says he felt like he was ending their suffering. Interesting. Yeah. Um, he, Yeah. He thought he was doing them a favor. It's just really pathetic and sad. Yeah. Yeah. That's all. It's just heartbreaking. It's like, how did we let it go for that long and not do anything? You know, like this was his, as you said, the ninth hospital he worked at. This Mm -hmm. is not the the second or the third or the fourth or fifth, right? It's not like enjoyable to watch, but it is very fascinating and interesting to see where so many people just didn't speak up. I don't know. I'm always fascinated by that. I'm like, what causes people to just all buy in independently on being quiet about something. Yeah. I think that's I think that's what I got from watching the movie in the first place. Mm-hmm. I actually felt like there was more commentary on the system being set up to protect mm-hmm. the hospital mm-hmm. and its brand and its employers yeah. rather than actually f- focusing on Charlie's actions. Like yes, obviously he's the main criminal here but i think i felt like they that's what they were trying to get at in the film it's just like yeah yeah he did this horrible thing but he was protected yeah i agree and i and i think the documentary only adds more to that like it kind of shows all the people who try to speak up and were basically shut up and Mm -hmm. and i think this is just like an important commentary like i don't know megan if you've ever been in a situation where you really had to 
speak up and like be brave because it does it does require to be brave and courageous to speak up and out against something that is potentially scary or really against status quo i remember i have had to do that once and it was terrifying and i'm just thinking about pat the nurse like it's just Mm -hmm. really good example and commentary on let's be honest like you speaking up and out against something nine times out Mm -hmm. of ten it won't go anywhere because like you are that one voice does that mean that you shouldn't speak up and say something absolutely not like you absolutely should it matters like every voice counts and every voice matters just don't take this as an example of like why you shouldn't speak up because that's not that's not the reason that's not the message here you absolutely should right i think at the end of the day the reason why he was caught is because there were enough people throughout his history that did make some sort of comment or note. So like the, the poor son who lost his mother, you know, Mm -hmm. put in a complaint Mm -hmm. and was like, this happened. Like, I know for a fact that she, this was a sketchy situation and she was murdered. Mm -hmm. Like, so that goes into the record at least. That's exactly right. Like just because nothing happens, that first time around or whenever you decide to speak up, it's mm-hmm. still a data point that is now collected. And you don't know, right. like there might be another person somewhere else or in a different department or a whole different other job in a different state that also mm-hmm. complains. And that's another data point. So don't ever think that you speaking up that one person isn't eventually going to accumulate and help for a different outcome. It all helps. I think overall, um, what you've told me today, I feel like it actually doesn't diverge that much mm-hmm. from the movie. It I only feel adds. like there's a lot of similarities. Yeah, it, it really only adds like the more finer details mm-hmm. that maybe, you know, when they were doing the movie and filming and pro- in final production stages, they're just like, uh, we don't need to add this very specific detail because we still get the message across. Mm-hmm. Like the, the story remains like consistent. I think there's a lot of Hollywood moments, I will say, like where the plot thickens yeah. and twists that they didn't yes. add, which I thought was interesting that they didn't. Like, for example, the whole lidocaine scene, like, oh my God, that is terrifying to for that to yeah. happen, to know that that actually happened, which they didn't include in the film. But say the name of the documentary one more time. Uh, it's called Capturing the Killer Nurse on Netflix as well. Okay. So if you want to do like a full day of just TV watching, you can watch the documentary and then the film or vice versa. It doesn't matter. All right. Well, thank you, Harini, for adding in those details. Mm-hmm. Definitely paints a fuller picture. Okay. Well, let's get out of here. This is a long episode. Um, don't risk it for that buggy pixis biscuit also i will say when you said pixie i was just thinking about like a little fairy drug or like a drug fairy that yeah. would like like a stork drop off drugs at the hospital <laughs> amazon probably at this point exactly, exactly. <laughs> but yeah don't risk it for that all right bye